electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Obviously, busy morning of earnings, banks included. But first, some breaking news from the IMF. Let's get to Steve Leisman in D.C. Steve? Carl, thanks very much. Saying we are in a synchronized slowdown, the IMF downgrading global growth to 3%, the lowest level since the financial crisis, and they're downgrading most advanced economies. Uh, you can see right there, these numbers, 3% for the world, 2.4 for the U.S., 1.2 for the euro area, under a percentage point for Japan, and 6.1 for China. These are all down, you can see right there, from the prior forecast, and also mostly, except for, I think, Japan, down from last year. The IMF saying in its report, downside risks are elevated, trade barriers and heightened geopolitical tensions, including Brexit-related risks, could hamper confidence, investment, and growth. They are very down, as you might imagine, on this trade issue. Very quickly, let me show you, they do see something of a moderation next year in 2020. We go back up to 3-4, but it isn't the advanced economies that get there. They're mostly looking for a turnaround in emerging markets and developing countries. Four things the IMF notes need to be done to battle the slowdown. They're saying an international response may be needed if things get worse from here. They say monetary policy cannot do it all because there's a risk created, financial risk created, from low interest rates they are urging, as they have in the past and continue to do, fiscal measures to help with the slowdown along with structural reforms. Carl? Uh, that is big news, Steve. Uh, we're going to uh, dissect a lot of that along with the earnings that we're getting today. We'll come back to you a little bit later, Steve Leisman. Uh, that ties into the earnings day we're getting on the banking front, at least. J.P. Morgan Chase, better than expected results, helped by some growth in home loans, auto loans and credit cards. Goldman, a slight profit miss. Revenue is essentially in line. And then City beats the street. Wells Fargo does miss on the bottom line, but does exceed consensus on the top line. Everybody, guys, seems to talk about uh, J.P. Morgan's FIC results. That seems yeah, to be that the was the big uh, the big uh, factor created the upside supply, uh, surprise. Uh, not necessarily the busiest quarter. It was a very good quarter for debt underwriting and in terms of fixed income trading, which was uh, a few hundred million to the better for J.P. Morgan. I think it's a matter of the mix of their trading uh, exposures and then, of course, positioning. So it's not something that you can extrapolate to the other firms. Sometimes it's a bit of a zero-sum effect. I think J.P. Morgan in general, though, checked all the boxes. Very steady performance. I think all of them are pretty steady. It's just third quarter was a little bit slow on investment banking, and that hit uh, in some areas. Yeah, you saw that in Goldman's numbers as well. Still leading in terms of the franchise and M&A, but the numbers were down year over year. 2000, the corresponding quarter of 18 was a very strong one there. Also underwriting, uh, again, down. I think it was a 9% decline overall, even though they, J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley, when it comes to equities, of course, are sort of numbers one, two, and three, depending on you know the quarter that you're talking about. 
but overall more muted than I might have anticipated given how often we spent, how much time we spent talking about, for example, IPOs. Yeah. And there were plenty of them, even if they didn't perform particularly well. It's true. Equity underwriting was a little bit light uh, for, for Goldman. Uh, again, just volumes mostly not there. Uh, you know, it's interesting because they, they obviously the group trades on a macro basis. It trades with yields, trades with expectations for how much we have left in this expansion because that's going to, you know, determine what credit costs look like down the road. But right now, I think it's a quiet backdrop for them in terms of results. question is, does the market give them any credit for this? I mean, Goldman mentioned earlier, trading a tangible book value. Return on tangible equity is 11% in the first nine months of the year. And the market says, yeah, fine, but what are you going to do when things aren't so great? Right. Although Citi gets to 12-2, yeah. uh, basically keeping a promise there. Uh, people commenting on some of the markdowns on uh, Goldman's uh, equity investments, Uber and the like. Shows uh, you it's just a little choppier. Yeah. Book, uh, I mean, the, the one, one narrative being spun today is their pivot, right? If you're down year on year on revenue, profit, EPS, ROE. How much? How long is this going to take? Yeah, and, and of course we've been talking, uh, uh, rightly so, I believe, about their efforts when it comes to consumer. And you can expect. By the way, the conference call calendar this morning is a little strange. Goldman is not till 11 a.m. In part because of the backup of all these different banks reporting at the same time and the various conference calls. So we're going to wait and see what management has to say there. But listen to your point, Carla. You know, Marcus, where they got 55 billion in deposits, five billion in loans. The Apple Card. I am told, by the way, we're not going to get any metrics on the Apple Card, so don't look for anything on the call that's going to give you a sense in terms of specifics how it's done, other than pretty elevated is what I'm hearing. And they've tried to keep the credit quality of the clients very high, uh, and they, at least people close to Goldman, tell me that uh, they're very happy over at Apple with the performance thus far of the Apple Card. And then they've also got this transactions platform, transaction banking. They've been using it internally. $250 billion in payments have been processed, but clients will access it next year. So that's the efforts that we're sort of referring to that are new, essentially, for Goldman Sachs, although building, and that's why non-comp expense will continue to be higher than it otherwise would have been. The question is, are you getting a, gr- a return for what you're spending? They would say, we've already got a bank that's got $55 billion in deposits, $5 billion in loans. Just to go out and find something like that, you'd have to pay more than we've spent. Yeah. The other steadier business that Goldman's been trying to refocus people on, of course, is asset management. It's been there forever, but now it's about 20% of revenue. And it's like an Apple issue, right? It's like, when does the market pay a higher multiple for the steady part of the services business? And for Goldman, it's going to be a while. I think you're not going to get, a, as, first of all, asset management multiples aren't high anymore. It used to be. <laughs> it used to be a way to get a premium, but now it's not. Uh, so it's good. It smooths out the business. But 20% is not going to kind of color the entire view of what the company's able to do. David mentions cards. Uh, uh, J.P. Morgan card sales up 10. Uh, and they did say delinquencies are pretty stable. All the color we normally look to from Jamie Dimon on the economy. He says, quote, in the U.S., economy, GDP growth has slowed slightly. The consumer remains healthy with growth in wages and spending, combined with the strong balance sheets and low unemployment levels, being offset by weakening business sentiment and capital expenditures, mostly driven by increasingly complex geopolitical risks, including tensions in global trade. One thing people did note, charge-offs, up 33 at JPM. Yeah, they're moving higher off very low levels, but not yet reaching a point where you have to worry too much about them. But again, it feeds into this idea that clock's ticking. You know, the expansion is not going, getting younger. Um, So again, it's not something you can't handle, but it's like a question of paying up right now for future results. Um, If you could say yields are going to go higher because this was just kind of an unwarranted recession scare, they'll they'll trade better. But uh, until you get more 
kind of comfort that we have years to go on the expansion. It's hard. He, to he was asked about a recession. He says, yeah. of course, there's a recession ahead. Do we is it happening soon? We don't know. Yeah. And Mike, I mean, this this stock has outperformed the S and P. This oh yeah, I mean, yeah. the stock's only about a dollar below its all time high. Right. Um, I mean, Although it's got the premium. The spoke yesterday said it's it's traded lower on Q3 results for nine straight yeah, years. Yeah, it's, it's been an incredibly consistent <laughs> pattern. We'll see if it holds up yeah. here, up two percent. So, I mean, obviously, it's kind of the consensus winner, and everyone gets that. It sort of mirrors what's been going on in the overall market. They want reliability and steadiness, willing to pay up for it uh, as a premium. Uh, but I don't know that it's necessarily changing the overall story just based on these three right. months. Return on equity, 15%. Return on tangible common equity, 18% uh, at J.P. Morgan. At Wells Fargo, guys, it's really sort of the waiting game at this point. I mean, they report the numbers. We'll see how the market reacts. But uh, Charlie Sharp takes over on October 21st uh, as the company's uh, chief executive officer and president. Uh, replacing, of course, uh, long-time interim yeah. CEO Alan Parker, who bid his goodbye in the press release. And the cordial well. thing to do if you're a company with a new CEO starting in a week is not go out of your way to beat earnings. Right. right? I mean, you could, there was no real incentive to put up a great quarter necessarily for, for Wells Fargo. All right. So as an opening note in Q3 earnings season at large, what do we say today? Uh, I think similar to the last two quarters, expectations got beaten down nicely. Over the course of the third quarter, expectations came down a lot. We're beating them handily. Uh, And the market is, um, on balance, slightly more rewarding than punishing. Uh, the results, but it's very early. I mean, you should look at UNH or something, and it's, you know, a, a little bit of an uptick after those numbers. Yeah, UNH did beat and raise. Uh, J&J uh, beats by about a, a dime. Revenue ahead as well. Larry Fink, of course, uh, talked about the overall investment climate this morning on Squawk. Take a listen to that. U.S. growth is at least 2%. China growth is somewhere between 5, 8, and 6, 2. Um, despite we're paying so much attention to the political and geopolitical issues that we're losing sight that the world still is moving forward. Um, and so I think that's one of the big issues that's going on now. It's not great, but it's not as bad as we feel every morning we wake up. Uh, well, speaking of which, you wake up this morning and get more headlines regarding China trade that they want the tariffs rescinded before they start buying $50 billion a year in American ag. Right. Uh, or, or China's retaliatory tariffs on American ag products need to go down if they're to make good on this purchase. Which agreement. they won't do. Which they won't do unless the U.S. cuts its own. Right. Yeah. So it seems as if that's an aspirational number, perhaps, for a while, that $50 billion in ag purchases. Although there was also some talk, though, that Chinese state media is... is in, in a more benign way, characterizing the agreement and saying that the U.S. and China are pretty much on the same page. So, looking to push back against I, this idea that it was I don't kind of a nothing you, happened. As an investor, I, I think it's got to be extraordinarily difficult to really figure out what is going on, sure. given all the different data points, the different view of the truth, to put it right. kind of... Well, and also the fact that it hovers out there still. I think, you know, my explanation for Friday's, you know, market action. So the S&P was at 2990-something at 3 p.m. Right. And it kind of gave up a percent fast because it was like, okay, this isn't going to get us out of the waiting game. This isn't going to take the suspense away about whether we have more to come in terms of tariffs or escalation. And that alone was enough to say, fine, we don't get an all clear on that front. We got to deal with this issue for a while. Right. Uh, which we'll continue to watch, obviously, along with uh, the other earnings that we haven't yet gotten to. We'll dig a little bit deeper into J&J after the break as earnings season does truly get underway this morning. Take another look at the pre-market. We'll watch that IMF uh, cut to global growth. Uh, they take U.S. to 2-4, down two tenths. We're back in a minute.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Futures are higher as earnings season kicks off today to a mostly upbeat start. Uh, J.P. Morgan, the banks, obviously, J&J, BlackRock beating estimates. The street had been expecting the worst third quarter earnings season in three years, with industrial companies seen as the biggest casualty as a result of the trade war. Stiefel's head of institutional equity strategy, Barry Bannister, joins us this morning. And BNY Mellon's director of investment strategy, Jeff Mortimer. Guys, good morning. Good to see you both. Morning. Morning, Barry, I, I want to get right to one of your more interesting calls. You've been net cautious all year long, but you've got a nice tactical call on cyclical stocks going into the end of the year. What is it? Yeah, we, uh, we think the market's really ripe for blocking and tackling. Of course, it's going to pivot on the whole question of a recession in 2020. Uh, but the setup reminds me a little bit in October 2019 of uh, July of 2016. Uh, we had very weak nominal growth in the economy on a year-over-year basis then and now. Uh, things pivoted up a little bit for the next three to six months after that. Uh, so we uh, had been, as you said, uh, very positive for the last year on defensives like utilities, REITs, and staples. Uh, but we think it's time for a little bit of cyclical, some energy, uh, some financials, and some industrials into year-end. Huh. Does that extend to things like transports or not? The transports are obviously leveraged to global growth and trade and trade volumes in particular. Uh, pricing is an issue. There are some special situations on shipping related to bunker fuel and so forth. But overall, I think that the um, market is already starting to look into early 2020, and we're trying to stay about three to six months ahead of the current situation. And I like what I'm seeing, but we'll be very aware of the risks, and uh, we'll watch that position. All right. Uh, Jeff, people trying to uh, draw analogs to the environment we were in about a year ago. Is this December going to be like last December? Others argue the Fed's in a much different place, even though some of the trade uh, uh, dynamics are similar. Uh, what do you expect going into actually the, the, the prints we're getting on Q3 and then guidance for Q4? Yeah, I, uh, I don't think that this Q4 will be like a last year's. I think there, you had a perfect storm of... Uh, forced selling by hedge funds and mutual funds. You had a lot of tax loss harvesting as markets turned from positive to negative, and you had algorithmic trading exacerbating some of those issues. So I get asked that a lot by clients. Or is this the same setup? And I think, Carl, you hit the nail on the head. The Fed has changed its posture, certainly pivoting to neutrality uh, late last year and then even to easing this year, as we all know. So I think we're in a different backdrop, and we've got uh, more in the tank, almost a 20% gain on most assets. So I don't, I don't think uh, Q4 is setting up to be uh, weak like last year's was. Certainly a fear of most clients, but we don't, we don't see it at this juncture. Well, Jeff, what does that mean? Does it mean we can just expect kind of a normal seasonal lift, or do you think that uh, there's more to it than that? Yeah, I think, again, you're going to enter a decent seasonality backdrop. A lot of markets make their bottoms in September and October. I think if we can get through this earnings season, and I think analysts have, for the most part, uh, as they typically do, they're probably a bit pessimistic going into this earnings print, down 4% or so. And so uh, they tend to set the hurdle a bit too low uh, that companies then jump over. We're seeing a little bit of that today from some very strong uh, reports so far. I know we're only 
going to have 7% or companies, S&P companies this, this week. But I think so far so good, and I think you might have a decent end to this year. Certainly there are backdrops of trade and tariffs and, and other issues, impeachment, and all these things that go on that are very tough to map and model. But I think in general, uh, we're in a, a pretty decent spot as far as markets and rates are concerned. Yeah. Speaking of being cautious, Barry, uh, this BAML survey this morning, everybody's hiding in cash, uh, REITs, real estate, staples, uh, a third expected global economy to weaken in the next 12 months. You got this IMF outlook this morning. Um, do you think we're going to be caught off guard uh, 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 per your cyclical trade on the markets in general? Well, I think that that survey reflects why the uh, defensives have done so well in the last year and year to date. Remember, we have to risk adjust for volatility, the returns at the sector level. And so far this year, utilities, REITs and staples have clobbered the rest of the market risk adjusted. Um, I like the tone that's going on in trade. I think that both sides are talking with mutual respect. They'll probably uh, throw some bones to each other and we might get some positive uh, moves there. It's going to be a long slog in terms of negotiations, but I think that the tone is better. Brexit tone is a lot better. And uh, as BMO mentioned, uh, there's been a huge reversal in the last year in the Fed's posture. Uh, this uh, injection of reserves is a big, big positive for the market in terms of liquidity improvement. So, um, Barry, does that mean that, you know, this idea that, you know, cyclicals and more aggressive stocks can work a little bit better, is that just kind of a contrary positioning type move, a mean reversion thing, and then we're back into a similar kind of slow growth uh, t texture for the market? Or do you think that we actually have a real new leg of growth coming? The consumer has held on very well in the United States, and we've uh, depleted some inventory. I think that what we're going to probably see is a better growth profile in the fourth quarter versus the third sequentially on a nominal and real basis. Uh, it could continue into early 2020 if we can push back any possible future recession date. But right now, it looks like uh, a green light to us for a, uh, as, uh, as was mentioned earlier, a bit of a seasonal rally here off of October. Hey, finally, Jeff, uh, you know, speaking of the new, whether we call it a trade truce or a deal or what have you, there's a, a theory that a lot of companies were hanging on to employees longer than they ordinarily would, hoping for a grand deal. And we're trying to save on operating expenses through wage growth uh, and maybe hours worked. But now that we sort of know the deal for now, uh, they are going to go ahead and make those tough decisions on headcount going into year end. How likely do you think that is? Uh, that's an interesting question. I have not heard that yet, Kyle. Uh, Carl. Uh, it's interesting to note, I, I have not heard that in the conversations that I've had with, uh, with management or, or money managers. I, we'd have to see. I, I don't know if a lot of people did expect a grand bargain. Certainly in our investment strategy committee, we were looking at many mini deals and that this uh, trade and uh, tariff war or issues will continue on for a longer period of time than, than many expect. So perhaps if companies are caught off sides, some of that might be coming. But I, I hope that is not as widespread as, as you may have deemed that in, in the question. We'll, we'll have to see going forward. All right, guys, I appreciate it. Obviously, there's a lot of information headed our way, uh, earnings-wise, in the next few weeks. Uh, Barry, Jeff, thanks. Still to come, uh, former Wells Fargo CEO Richard Kovacevich will get his take on the bank earnings today and what it all means for the sector. Futures look pretty good here, uh, not far from uh, session highs in the pre-market. We're back in a moment.
we could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1-Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash skills. There's a look at the futures, uh, hoping to get back to uh, about 29.85 on the S&P. Uh, bank earnings to get to today and a lot more uh, Fed speak headed our way. Opening bell in about six minutes. You're watching CNBC Squawk on the Street, live from the financial capital of the world. The opening bell in about three minutes. Uh, busy Tuesday morning. A lot of the bond markets open again after the Columbus Day holiday. And the first wave of real torrential earnings rain is uh, is upon us with the banks. Yeah. And we'll get uh, some transport starting with United tonight. And I think it's welcome, uh, the idea that you can look at companies and figure out, you know, what comes next in terms of the next three months. Um, interesting you mentioned the bond market, but it seemed like the stock market didn't know what to do with itself yesterday with the bond market closed. No real lead from yields. Lightest uh, volume very, in. <laughs> very light volume. Yes. Yeah. In two years, maybe? Close, right? What's that? Uh, in terms of volume. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really slow day. Uh, today, I mean, the bond market's not doing much, but yields are holding the 10-year near 1.7, and I feel like that steadies the outlook here. You know, one interpretation is the trade deal certainly didn't do anything to undercut the idea of a rate cut in maybe two. You know, even though we don't can't pencil them both in, uh, there was not at all clear. Therefore, if you thought before the Fed was going to be more friendly the rest of this year, it didn't change that picture much. Uh, 10-year holding at 1.7, up from 1.5 or so a week ago. Uh, and Bullard, Bostic, and George on the tape today. Uh, we'll watch. Uh, try to keep an eye on Congress. The Senate's back in session. Uh, been lots of reports about the kind of testimony that we'll be getting behind closed doors uh, this week. Obviously, the situation in Turkey. More comments about the withdrawal of U.S. troops from portions of northern Syria. The Turkish lira coming off a five-month low after those uh, sanctions announced by the president and the call for a ceasefire. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, it's it's not one of those things that has a real direct lever to any of the things we normally look at, but adds to the to the noise level. And, you know, Carl, you mentioned the, the Bank of America Merrill Lynch fund manager survey, which remains very downbeat, very much matches this defensive, defensive posture. And I think it's it's just because of headline fatigue largely and this idea that, uh, you know, we're a little bit uh, in, in the home stretch of the expansion. Not to say that's true, but that's the impression. Um, and S&P, I was saying uh, you know, earlier, hit 29.92 or something like that, 3 o'clock Friday. You're down from there. You're going to pick up part of that now uh, at the open. So I think the earnings uh, looks like a net positive contributor in terms of earnings reactions. This is one of those days you can add up the Dow components and figure out if they're offsetting one another. But right now, UNH and J.P. Morgan uh, are doing their share to offset Goldman. Yeah, UNH positive. Yep. Uh, UNH uh, three eighty eight beats by thirteen cents revenue ahead. Plus the, the guidance raise may be uh, 
for now, the policy risk that some have been building building into the stock is outweighed by the results. Yeah, and it's been a weak performer, of course, so coming off a low base. Also, by the way, um, Brexit. We have a debate tonight, by the way, amongst the Democratic candidates. Hunter Biden on GMA. There's a lot to watch if you're keeping an eye on politics. Let's get to the opening bell here. And the S&P 500 at the big board. It is discount store Dollar General celebrating its 80th anniversary at the NASDAQ Nucana, a biopharma focused on improving treatment for cancer patients. So I guess JPM is going to help light the way at the open. Yeah, it looks like it. Um, you know, JPM, obviously, it's a... Uh, Pretty heavily weighted stock, and uh, you, you know it looks like up two percent. The, the all-time high is a bit over 120, so it is pushing that. It's tough to get, I guess, too negative on the overall market when you have, you know, Apple and J.P. Morgan pushing new highs, uh, even if the rest of it is looking a little bit more uh, tattered underneath. Um, and uh, you know, Goldman Sachs is is kind of giving back about a similar amount. So it does seem as if that's the toggle right now. I don't think anyone thinks financials are going to lead the market higher, but it does kind of help the idea that um, the cyclical tone of the market can can hold together for a little while. And Carl, you'll be happy to know they've maintained their fortress principles, just in (laughs) case you were wondering at J.P. Morgan. Book value, by the way, if you're keeping track, 75.24, up 8%. Uh, tangible book 6048. So, I mean, it is trading well above book, which is different than that stock, Goldman Sachs, which uh, has really not traded far above Tangible it. book at the end of this quarter, 205 and change. Yeah. So there you are, uh, right at, if not a bit below, again, off a quarter that is perhaps less than inspiring. Uh, the conference call not going to get underway for another hour and a half. You'd expect a lot of the analysts are going to be asking about the efforts Goldman is making in terms of consumer banking and uh, with Marcus, with the Apple uh, credit card, with its transaction processing platform that it's going to start rolling out uh, more broadly next next year. And the, obviously the costs of, of all of that and whether they're getting a return on it. But when it comes to the basic business that Goldman does that we all know it for, M&A, underwriting, uh, fixed income currency and commodities, sort of an underwhelming quarter. Yeah, it's looking like on the trading side, it really, I mean, the market isn't paying up for that at all, even though, uh, you know, these franchises are still pretty good. Uh, so I do think it's, um, it's really about the belief in that transformation that seems to be driving the story. I did want to mention Schwab, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, also an earnings beat today, uh, up 4% because it did get hit with all the other guys uh, back when the zero commission uh, f- kind of wave hit uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. We've not uh, heard from Wilfred Frost, uh, who's been obviously monitoring the bank earnings all morning long. Wilf, uh, some takeaways from you. Yeah, uh, morning, Carl. We've just been listening to the calls that J.P. Morgan just uh, wrapped up. And the headline from that, I'd say, is that uh, Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon was a little less constructive in terms of his macro outlook than I've heard him uh, in a while. Uh, he said in terms of China and trade, quote, it's hurting business confidence and expenditures. Uh, also got a similar tone uh, from the city CFO on their media call where we heard, quote, uh, that there's cautious sentiment out there from corporates. Uh, back to Diamond on the U.S. economy, he said, quote, still growing, but we'll see. The key term, though, in terms of the consumer and credit quality is he's very relaxed. You're overdoing the pressures in the banking industry, okay? Because we've had a we've had growth in the United States for the better part of ten years, and I'd say that the credit is extraordinarily good. Uh, 
In terms of trading, uh, both City and JP Morgan seeming to suggest that the surprise beat we saw in the fixed income trading came just in the final month of the quarter. That clearly didn't really uh, play out for Goldman Sachs. We'll have to see if it did play out uh, for some of the others still to come. Bank of America tomorrow, Morgan Stanley uh, on Wednesday. Some also interesting comments on the calls about that spike in the repo rate during the quarter. Uh, essentially, the tone coming from both City and JP Morgan is it was in part due to some of the liquidity requirements they face from regulators, though they do think the Fed is addressing it. It sounds like uh, if there are bigger stresses in the market to come, the reaction could be bigger still, but they hope that the Fed is addressing the issues. Uh, just want to snapshot one thing for the earnings overall. This is the year-over-year -year revenue change for the third quarter for all of the big banks, and it's playing out in the share prices. JP Morgan up 8%. City and Wells Fargo essentially flat year-over-year. -year. Goldman Sachs down uh, 5 or 6% year-over-year, year, and that plays out, as I said, in the share price performance today and also the earnings multiples that, that each of those banks command. Uh, people curious about uh, J.P. Morgan's exposure to WeWork, which uh, they were asked about today, Wilf. Yeah, so uh, in fact, the analyst call didn't go into it too much, some general comments about uh, IPO backlog and uh, M&A backlog, but uh, on the media call, uh, I counted four different reporters uh, all trying to get a comment on it. Absolutely no comment whatsoever. I guess they're, they're able to hide behind that line of saying we never comment specifically about uh, any one client, uh, but, but no luck in terms of any specific comments, which of course is a contentious one, both for them and Goldman Sachs, because they're both uh, the lead book runners on that uh, attempted IPO with the S1 that was so controversial, which essentially their bankers must have rubber stamped. The question with uh, JP Morgan goes a step deeper because of uh, personal uh, loans to uh, Adam Newman and, and those reports, at least, that uh, Jamie Dimon and Adam Newman have met directly themselves. But no comments uh, on the media call, so we, we didn't get any answers on that. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, we'll check back with you later on, uh, Wilfred Frost. Uh, separately from banks, I mean, NVIDIA is going to make a stand here as uh, BAML takes their price target from 225 to 250 Data center growth, apparently the new landmark on AI is neutral, natural language processing, which they say uh, NVIDIA's data center has uh, a lead on. Yeah, the story remains that um, whatever the, the, the big, important, hot thing is, NVIDIA is, is, is in the middle of it. And I think, uh, I think that makes sense. It's also, you know, a stock that remains a good deal below its, its old highs. And so it feels as if uh, there's, some, there's some room to make up tactically. So that seems to be what's going on there. And the semiconductors have not really given, you know, given much in this, uh, in this latest little push the market had uh, up in the, in, into the range of old highs. Yeah, you look back, obviously, at NVIDIA and so many of the other names at that point, a little more, little, little less than a year ago, I guess, right before the December yeah. swoon, Mike, where they were all yeah. trading at their highs. Uh, yeah, and it's fought, and it's to, fought to that zone, but up, you know, another, you know, three quarters of a percent today as an index. Yeah. Um, all right, wanted to move on, guys, to a story that we've been following here. D.E. Shaw, the $50 billion hedge fund that in recent years has engaged in shareholder activism along with its many other disciplines, will today make public something the market has already known for weeks. It has a more than 1% position in Emerson Electric uh, and is embarking on a campaign to bring significant change to the industrial giant that includes asking the company to split its industrial automation business from its climate technology business while embarking on a significant effort to cut costs. While Emerson's stock price has already responded recently to stories of D.E. Shaw's potential activism, its release today of a voluminous report outlining all the ways in which Emerson has failed shareholders over the last decade is its first public utterance since the reports of its potential activism 
first surfaced. Now, the report offers a searing indictment of Emerson's longtime CEO, David Farr, and of its board of directors, who have presided over a significant shortfall in total shareholder return over the last three, five, and ten years when measured against Emerson's peers in the automation or HVAC industries, not to mention a ten-year lag of a roughly 120 percent versus the S&P. D.E. Shaw focuses on what it says is a history of poor capital allocation by the company since Farr took over as CEO. Since 2000, Emerson has spent nearly $14 billion of capital when accounting for M&A and CapEx, but it's only increased its EBITDA by $400 million over that period when accounting for its capital expenditures. The resulting 3% pre-tax return on incremental capital severely lags almost every one of its peers who post an average return of 11.4% during that same time period. Now, one culprit for those poor returns on capital, D.E. Shaw maintains, is a cost structure that includes the highest levels of SG&A relative to sales amongst its peers and the lowest revenue per employee versus those same peers and a broader universe of industrial companies. For example, the report cites Emerson's 18 different facilities in the city of Houston, of uh, one area that could be used to reduce cost. Another, the company's aviation department. That includes eight airplanes, one helicopter, and a staff of 40 people, they also have their own internship program at the aviation department. Emerson's CEO, Farr, has long been lauded as a consummate industrialist, and his retail shareholder base has stood by him, given a dividend that has increased every year of his term. D. Shaw claims, though, he's been overcompensated for that track record, with pay of $150 million over the last 10 years, 50% more than the S&P 500 average, despite shareholder returns that have lagged that index by 118%. They also note that Mr. Farr has been compensated over $300,000 annually in perks related to his personal use of the company's jets. To put that in perspective, that's five times more than the average for Emerson's peers in terms of how much they use the plane. They do it based on uh, what a first-class ticket would cost and above that. They want Emerson to change its metrics, by the way, for long-term incentive compensation, which are solely focused on EPS and free cash flow growth, uh, and they want them to include indicators such as return on invested capital and total shareholder return. Now, these are metrics that are widely used by Emerson's peers. As well, they're asking the company to unstagger its board of directors so that all directors come up for a vote every year. And they note, by the way, the board, apart from Mr. Farr, owns only 0.04% of the company's stock. And there have been only three open market purchases by board members over the last 10 years. By the way, Ford board members are currently up for election, including Mr. Farr. The window for filing a proxy closes November 6th. Now, none of this, in terms of arguments, means D.E. Shaw is going to get what it wants. It is a relative newcomer to activism. It owns only a 1% or so stake. And while it may say it's ready to endure a proxy fight for board seats, it remains unclear whether it will do so. As well, the track record for creating value from company splits, well, that remains far from clear. Of course, consider DuPont. We've talked about it a lot here. Years of activism from Tryon and Third Point succeeded in getting a split, but that is yet to create real value. On October 1st, soon after reports of D.E. Shaw's interests were reported, Emerson said it began a review of the company's operational, capital allocation, and portfolio issues. Guys, we'll keep an eye on this one, but it could be an interesting fight given the window closes in only a few weeks. It's, it sounds like a, an activist campaign in the old style, where you identify this company that has uh, a little bit of a complacent shareholder base, I would argue, very much a popular individual investor holding because of the dividends and things like that, and you can identify how it's just been the suboptimal performer and, and, and just not managed for 
you know, kind of a lean and mean type performance. Yeah, I think their their focus on costs, which they say that could be reduced by as much as a billion dollars. They took a look at it from both top down and bottom up. The lack of productivity per employee. Of course, you are talking when you get into that, and sometimes it overlaps with sort of politics in terms of will there be, would they want there to be layoffs and things of that nature. The plane, though, always resonates, I think. Why you need eight airplanes and one helicopter when none of their competitors have anywhere near that, and 40 employees in your aviation department, it costs about 25 million bucks a year, at least according to D.E. Shaw, to run that. That is something I think that certainly some shareholders may question as well. Of course, the company has a fascinating history. Back in the 90s, they were known for never letting net income go down year on year. Uh, Their old CEO, Chuck Knight, that was his hallmark, right? Right. It was was a legacy in the days of Tyco when Tyco was taking an alternate strategy. And you know, Carl, they still, I mean, the compensation, as I said, the incentive plan is still based on EPS growth being, I think they wanted to be 300 basis points above GDP. That's what they're looking for. If they hit that metric, that 60% of the incentive pay goes to them. Many of the other companies that they compete against are looking at a lot of different metrics. And you do wonder, because you can get EPS growth, but it doesn't mean you're getting a return on invested capital. It doesn't mean you're hitting a lot of other things. You can pay 20 times EBITDA for a company like Rockwell, which they went after and failed to get. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to really create long-term value. And buy back a bunch of stock or whatever Exactly, yes. All right. Good stuff, David. Uh, about 90 points of the Dow's gain is UNH alone. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Bob? That is what's uh, moving things. Uh, healthcare is the big sector mover thanks to UNH. Uh, good start to the uh, earnings season for UNH and for J.P. Morgan. Take a look at the sector. It's kind of confusing China trade headlines. So let's just move on today. Go right to the markets here. Healthcare is up. As Carl mentioned, that's UNH helping. Tech, banks, marginally positive. Industrials, energy week. So the cyclicals are uh, flat to slightly on the upside. A lot of discussion about J.P. Morgan. I hope you were listening to Wolf, who was uh, quoting uh, J.P. Morgan's uh, Jamie Dimon about the strength of the consumer. And that's what you want to look at. I know we tend to look at trading figures and things like that. I look at where the consumer numbers are. Loan growth at J.P. Morgan up 3%. Deposit growth up 5%. Credit card loans up uh, 8%. That's certainly very good news for them. So I think the bottom line here is loan growth is still solid. Uh, Credit still very good shape. Net charge-off still pretty low. These are good numbers here overall, but you shouldn't kid yourself. Banks trade somewhat in line with where the interest rate scenario is. So if you just look at the KBE, which is the bank ETF, the uh, the ETF for all the major banks versus the 10-year yield just in the last few months. So here is your 10-year yield, the white line. Here is the bank index. You see, it, it it moves pretty good. This was the start of the big tariffs in the beginning of August when yields started moving down. And you can see it's, it's not exact, but there's a pretty good approximation. So bank stocks tend to move in line with the interest rate scenario. Don't kid yourself. And that's why we pay a lot of interest to net interest income and net interest margins here. And you can see it's been a little better recently uh, as the yields have moved to the upside. Take a look at uh, where we are here. J.P. Morgan, not quite a new high. A little over 120 would be the old new high there. But United Health, as Carl mentioned now, even more. Uh, 90 points uh, for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. They beat raise guidance, although the beat was effectively roughly the amount, I think 13 cents, of what the raise guidance was. Still a good start for them overall. Uh, IMF downgrading the world economic outlook. What was this, the fifth time they've done it? This has just been an ongoing thing with them for the last year here. I like to look at the Bank of America fund manager survey. We had 175 fund managers around the world. Good idea, good sense of the pulse of what fund managers are thinking every month. It's still the same. Everybody's long U.S. Treasuries. 
companies. Still, how many months on end has this been? And long U.S. tech and growth. These are the two big long plays out there. But there's other. We've been talking about shorting the cyclical sector and going long defensive sectors. They're still long defensive. They're still long cash and REITs and consumer staples and pharmaceutical stocks. That's a definition of defensive. And they're still short for the most part. Any of the cyclical groups, they're short energy, they're short industrials. Oh, by the way, they're short the U.K., uh, too. So what else is going on? I think take a look at the next chart here. And I think the important thing that you'll see is what would make this is my favorite. What would make the market go up the most for them? Turn it around. Say, so what are you worried about? Turn it around. What would make the market go up? Seventy five percent say ending the trade war would be the biggest single catalyst for rising the stock market. That's a huge number. And it's been that way for a while now. German fiscal stimulus, a small group think that would really help. Certainly would in Europe. Chinese infrastructure spending as well. And a relatively small group, only 7% say the Fed continuing to raise rates would really help move the markets. We're talking about equity markets now. That's interesting. How many people think a recession is going to be out there? Well, it's about 31% in the next 12 months. 67% say no. Is this good or bad? Well, that number has been a little higher but it's still not even close to a majority. So you can spin this either way. That number's been higher than it was uh, six, seven, eight months ago, but not anywhere near a majority. Bottom line here, guys, is still very, very long defensive for most of this group. It's a pretty crowded trade right now. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob. That's interesting, Uh, Bob Pisani. Let's get back to Rick Santelli, who's at the CME once again after the long holiday weekend. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl. Indeed, as Treasuries come back, the short end, Dipping just a little bit from recent highs, long end holding in a bit better. Look at a one week of two year note yields. You can see that we definitely jumped a bit. We are coming off. You can see it reflected in 10s minus 2s, which continues to trade close to that 14, 15 level. 24 hour chart of 10 year yields. You see it starting to get its legs back, popping a bit, hovering right around 171. Open the chart up to early September. Yeah, these are basically we're in the zip code of some of the highest yields in about two and a half weeks. But once again, maybe the best gauge continues to be to watch the 30-year bond. At 219, 30-year bond is unchanged. 209 was a huge technical level it surpassed last week. We continue to hold above that. Dollar index, exact opposite picture. One week chart there shows deterioration. Remember, our 29-month high is right around 99.40. We're currently trading right around 98.40. So we really need to pay very close attention. Excuse me, 98.60. We need to pay close attention as you open the chart up. Uh, Even though we are close to those highs, we are starting to ease back. And many of the funding issues of the dollar index uh, uh, has demonstrated are one of the impediments that many economists give to some of the issues around the globe, especially on liquidity and funding. So it's, it's a mixed bag with the dollar index. As it backs away, many think some of these conditions they've been nervous about may ease back as well. Carl. Back to you. All right, Rick. We'll see you later. Uh, Rick Santelli. Still to come this morning, the IMF, as you know, cutting its global growth outlook again. The chief economist on those challenges uh, facing the world will join us later on this morning. Dow up 144, mostly UNH, 10-year 171. Don't go anywhere. Healthcare is going to help the market today, uh, despite uh, some of the policy worries. UNH up almost 6%, followed by other names like Cigna and Anthem uh, in the top five. Dow's up 141, largely due to that. We're back in a moment. 
Lockup expirations for Pinterest and Zoom. Our Leslie Pickers in San Francisco watching that as you alert us, uh, alerted us to it last week, Leslie. Hey, Carl, that's right. Pinterest and Zoom are two recent IPOs that are still trading well above their IPO prices, but trading lower this morning. The reason why each has a flood of share supply that's hitting the market as their lockup agreements expire, allowing insiders to sell. Now, this happens for nearly every IPO about 180 days after their debuts. But Pinterest has up to 538 million shares available to be sold this morning. That does not include shares held by employees who are still locked up until Pinterest reports earnings on October 31st. Zoom has about 230 million shares that are free to hit the market today. So combined, guys, we're looking at upwards of $30 billion worth of stock available to be sold on the market today. Now, of course, there will only be a fraction of that amount that is actually sold today, and there's no guarantee it will actually pressure the stocks uh, in the long run. But the additional supply into the market may not be met with a comparable surge in demand, meaning the stock could take some kind of hit, as we're seeing in early trading today. Now, given the heightened level of IPO activity from the first half of the year, there's about $140 billion worth of stock being released from the IPO lockups in the remainder of 2019. Investors now are gaming out whether that makes for a large or small risk to post-IPO performances. Back over to you. Uh, Great radar on that, Leslie. Thank you very much. Of course, PINs, at least, is down almost 4%, taking you back to June. Uh, you really have to get into the psychology of these employees who yes. have to decide if they think it can come back or not. Exactly. I, I think there's always going to be a little bit of a pent-up for companies that have been private for so long. And the volumes are pretty heavy uh, at the open in, in both Zoom and Pinterest. So clearly, people are uh, you know, hitting this window uh, that open up. But often enough, the market anticipates the supply and, uh, and expects it to be uh, soaked up pretty well. Yeah. Uh, Leslie Picker, thanks. You've been listening to The Opening Bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.